Hello and welcome back to an equity shot, or a kind of a shot. It's not really about a news item. Normally we do an equity shot when something big happens and we just stop in our tracks and race to the microphones. This is instead an outgrowth of an argument that Danny and I had today on, on Slack, trying to figure out what the, the, the real purpose is behind a SPAC and why they are now one of the hottest things in and around the world of technology. So first of all, a big thank you to Danny Crichton for being here. Danny, hello. Hi, how are you, Alex? Uh, well, I'm good. It's it's 5.30 on a Monday, so this is the correct time for us to sit down and argue about arcane financial whatnots for our friends in the equity audience. So let's start by talking about why SPACs are in the news, and then we'll dig into what they are. But Danny, you know, looking at the the IPO cycle that we're in, why are SPACs currently the term of the moment? Yeah, so, so, so let's start by defining what a SPAC is. So, so a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company. company. Okay. There you go. C. So you asked me what the purpose is. It's special. That's that's literally in the title. Mm. Um, so a SPAC is a, a publicly traded blank check company. So l- much like venture firms, venture firms are blank check vehicles. You know, when an LP, a limited partner, invests in a VC firm, they don't know that what they're investing in. They're investing literally in people. They give a, a bucket of cash to the general partners to say, go invest based on a thesis that you presented. So it might be, hey, we're enterprise investors, go invest in enterprise. We're consumer investors, we yeah. want to go invest in this. It's actually identical for a SPAC. You're, you're going up and saying, hey, we have a thesis. We think that there's enterprise software companies that should be publicly traded. We think that we can make money. Here's how we think we can make money. Give us a billion dollars. We're going to go find that company and go do it. They've become popular because you know more and more companies want to be publicly traded today. You know, with uh, post-coronavirus, everyone wants to be on the public market suddenly. It's ironic because over the last couple of years, no one wanted to be on the public markets. And you know, SPAC is one way of doing that really efficiently. And there's only a couple of rules with SPAC. So you, let's say you and I get together and we form a SPAC entitled, you know, Danny and Alex's Super Smart SPAC. And we put in $100 million a piece because that's how much money you and I keep laying around the accounts you know, on a personal basis, you know, week to week. We would have a $200 million SPAC and it would go public and it would trade for presumably right around $200 million because that's the cash that it has. Now, it could go out and buy something. It can go out and buy um, a small enterprise software company or a small social company. And there's rules about this. We have to complete the transaction within two years, I think. And I believe the purchase price has to be within 80, it has to be 80% of the value of the thing you're buying. So you can't go out with the SPAC of $4 and buy Ford Motor Company if it's private. It has to be kind of aligned. Now, past that, Danny, are there rules that I need to know about SPACs that, that are limiting and useful to the conversation? Or is that kind of the basics that we need to know to talk about why they matter today? I think, I think that sounds good. I mean, the only other thing that's important to note is the fees that are involved. So the people who raise a SPAC oftentimes get a, a sort of a placement fee right up front a percentage of the total assets that are raised as part of the the transaction. So when you create the SPAC, the actual managers of the SPACs oftentimes get millions of dollars right up front as soon as they close. Whereas in VC land, those fees tend to accrue over a period of 10 years. And those would be the uh, kind of the 2% of the of the fund that is given out to help finance uh, the VC firm's operation off the capital they raised to That's invest. right. Those fees are much higher in the SPAC world. SPACs, SPACs already sound a little dodgy to me, given the fee structure and the upfront payments. Now, Companies go public all the time, but inside of the technology world, there's a lot of brouhaha about pricing, about, you know, why is this company, you know, going public at $21 a share and opening at 40? Now, back when I was a child in the 90s, these were headlines. These were uh, successes. These were dramatic wins. In the current climate, people now look at dramatic first day pops of traditional IPOs, not SPAC-led debuts, as a negative thing. Why, why is Bill Gurley so mad? Well, I think, you know, the, the argument is you're leaving money on the table, right? So you're selling... 15% of your company, which is a typical float for an IPO, somewhere in 10 to 15% range. And you're saying, hey, this thing is worth 400 million. It's actually worth a billion. 
right? You're actually giving a 60% discount uh, of, of its true value to these insiders, these people who know your Goldman Sachs MDs, your Morgan Stanley MDs, all these insiders. And that's money left behind for the employees, all the other owners of capital, all the VCs who invested early, and you're essentially giving this money away. And in the old days, when there was less information, the idea was, hey, a big pop shows, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of demand that carries right. forward. I, I think the argument is changing. I, I don't know if it's 100% true, but the argument is changing that, look, you don't need the pop anymore to convince asset managers two years down the road to say, whoa, I need to get into that hot company. Remember when Slack debuted and it popped 100%? Now it's been two years, we can invest. I think today people are much more fundamentals focused. They focus on the, the actual data and those pops matter less. Yeah, so I think back in the 90s, when the company would have $4 in revenue and eight users, it was indicative of excitement about the future of the business that it was doing so right. well as an IPO. Today, because we're talking often about SaaS companies, cloud infra businesses, things that are a bit more nuts, bolts, and boring, they probably shouldn't be priced so that they jump so high right after the debut. And keep in mind that when you do go public through a traditional IPO, you sell a block of shares at a determined price, and then the stock begins to trade. You don't get the opening price, you get the IPO price. And that's the gap between the two is what people are really annoyed about when it's too large. So people are now saying SPACs are the way to go because theoretically, at least in the view of some people, and this is what I want to kind of drill down on, SPAC-led technology startup exits that become public through these SPAC acquisitions will theoretically have a better pricing mechanism. Now, Danny, I understand if you don't like the way IPOs are priced, doing a direct listing, which is just beginning to float, and then later on selling some stock at a per share price that has become uh, the norm after some trading. To me, that is a way to price where the market will have you and then raise some capital. SPACs seem to be a short circuit around the IPO process, but I don't understand the, the mechanism by which they're more intelligently priced than traditional IPOs. I think of it as unbundling a bunch of stuff that happens in the IPO, right? So in the IPO, you're doing a bunch of things. You are floating your shares, which means there's now a market mm. to buy and sell them. You are fundraising. You're creating dilution in the company. You're selling 10 to 15% new shares, plus more in the green shoe and all that sort of stuff in order to get more capital onto the balance sheet, right? So you're raising capital. And then there's also this part of, of finding buyers, right? You're actually looking for people to invest in the company long-term who may not just buy 15% of the shares, but might want to buy up 20, 30% over the long term. You know, companies like uh, Slack use direct listings because they just want to create a market for their shares. They have shares, they have money, they don't need to raise money, and you're just creating the market. So it's similar to putting your car up at a, uh, a dealership and saying, hey, I would like someone to buy this. I don't need it to happen right now. I don't need to sell the car, but it is available if anyone wants to buy it. it, it it's sort of like a pocket house sale, if you know what that is in, in the real estate markets. It's like, yeah, I'd sell if a buyer showed up, but like I don't need it to be you know transacted today. I think in, in the case of a SPAC, a SPAC is really a substitute for Google or another tech company to do an acquisition, right? So SPACs actually compete with you know private equity firms like Vista. They compete with Google and other tech companies in terms of acquisition because they actually have cash to buy. They're looking to acquire yes. the company and they're going to buy those shares. So you're not just floating them; you're actually getting cash for your shares. You're you're exiting out of the company. And that's the opportunity in, in the SPAC world where you're saying, look, you want to separate the process of going IPO. That's already happened because it's publicly traded. And you want to separate out the acquisition from the market setting price. You can do all this kind of unbundled. And that's what's kind of interesting with SPACs is you get to pick and choose. You can do them at different times. You have this flexibility. You don't have to jam it all in the S1 and try to make everything magically happen all at the same time, which is very risky. So I hear all of that. And... I understand some of the appeal of it because if you do SPAC a company, and I don't know if we can really use that as a verb, but we're going to just 
We're going to abuse English today because there's no way to get around SPAC being a hilarious construction. If you SPAC a company, you do purchase uh, the shares. And so theoretically, if you were a, a prior shareholder, you would be exited from the, from the deal, which is great. And then you can also maybe have a bit more say in determining the price at which you sell your shares. So maybe you can get the price you wanted. But to me, it doesn't solve the disconnect between what the market will pay and what you think it's worth. Now, you can say that the, the price determination for the exit price via the SPAC deal is more clearly defined and more fair, but it still doesn't stop the company from going up in value dramatically after the acquisition via the SPAC happens. And so one, one element that confuses me about this whole IPO process is different groups of, of shareholders. When you talk to any CEO after they go public, and this is part of my job, I do it every week when there's an IPO going on, they, they talk about how excited they are about their long-term investors, how they have this long time horizon, and they're so excited about having these bedrock holders. And then the stock goes out and Robinhood dipshits pay 8x for it, and then everyone says, oh, money was left on the table. If you want to have the long-term holders that CEOs claim they want to have, they will often pay a lower price than the Robinhood dipshits who will pay 4x that. And so saying that the Robinhood dipshits are the actual market price versus the long-term holder price to me is a bit of a misnomer. And so a lot of the, a lot of the brouhaha here is simply conflating different investor groups and different corporate priorities, i.e. the fundraise and the construction of a long-term shareholding base. And that's why this gets a bit messy. I can see how SPACs might help with little bits of that, but to me, it just doesn't solve the purported issue that people are cross about, which is the, the pricing gap between you know, institutional money and, uh, and idiots. Well, let me take that a couple of different ways. So I, I think on one, the, the benefit of a, uh, a SPAC is that you get access to uh, a set of investors into a blank check company that otherwise couldn't invest. So for instance, pension funds oftentimes have either limits on the kind of investments they can do in venture capital and alternative assets, or uh, they've already kind of used their kind of bucket up and they can only invest in public equities. Because a SPAC is publicly traded, they get access to anyone who can invest in publicly traded companies, not just those who can invest in uh, alternative assets. And that's huge because alternatives, even though it's grown massively over the last two decades, the reality is, is that most money is still in equities. It's still a tiny little silver, sliver. To give you a sense of this, some might have it as low as 5 or 7% and equity is 60% or uh, you know, a fifth right. income being the other major section. So being able to access and tap that massive pool of capital for a blank check is huge. The other piece here you're asking about is, is pricing. I think it's important to you know, compare things apples to apples, which means an IPO is selling 15% of a company or 10% of a company. In a SPAC case, you're acquiring the whole company, right? And when you're acquiring mm -hmm. 100% of the shares versus 10% of the shares, the price is very different. You're not, you're not selling 10 widgets, you're selling 100 widgets. And, and that changes the price, right? Because you're now asking someone to take on all the risk of a company. You're not just by balancing a portfolio like a VC. That SPAC is now fundamentally the whole company. And so, yes, there's a debate about price. The best way to create a market in that price is not through the traditional IPO market. It is actually an acquisition process, right? It is an acquisition company. That is the AC of SPAC. And they're going to compete with Vista and the PE firms, other tech companies, anyone else who might want to buy it out, the founders who might do a founder-led buyout anyone else who might potentially be a buyer, and they're going to run an investment banking process. So they're going to get all those bids in from anyone who's interested. And they're going to look and say, hey, we have six offers. We could go join Google uh, at this price. We could be publicly traded at this price. Vista wants to buy us out. It's going to do a debt-driven kind of restructuring or whatever and re, you know, put us on the public markets in, in a couple of years. Which option do we want to take? And I think for a lot of folks, SPAC probably gives them a nice number that's still publicly traded and they can say, hey, you, you know, I created a publicly traded IPO'd company. 
We just did it through this kind of reverse method. Sure. But if you're a VC and you believe in the long-term value of a company, and some VCs will hold shares post-IPO, some don't. We've talked about this on equity a bunch in the past. Depends on your thesis, what, how you approach the world, et cetera. Then a SPAC would essentially cap your upside 100%. Because if you have to sell all the shares, you get a price and you have cash on hand after that. A detail, a question. I don't know if you, if you know this offhand, Danny, but can you SPAC part of a company? Can you SPAC 30% of the shares in you know Danny's awesome enterprise SaaS behemoth incorporated? I think it depends on the uh, specific rules of the SPAC. I, I think it, most are assuming controlling stakes. I think that's built into a lot of those. So I don't think they have to own necessarily 100%. But my understanding is that they generally own controlling shares, which means 51% or higher. Right. So there's, well, yeah. So there's, there's, there's three ways to kind of approach the public markets these days. The traditional IPO, which I think we all agree, even if you believe my argument about different groups of shareholders, we can all agree there's been some wackily priced IPOs lately. Like I want to point out that I, that I'm fully cognizant of that. I respect it. On the other hand, there's been some IPOs that have been priced really high and I've been confused by it. So, you know, good job IPOs. There is the direct listing option, which Slack and Spotify really kind of paved the way for. And then there is the SPAC option. And I do hope this conversation has clarified bits of that for you. There's actually, now that I think about it, a fourth option, there was Google's reverse Dutch auction, mm -hmm. which went so poorly, no one ever tried it again since Google did it, as far as I can tell. So uh, all these methods, I'll just say this. I hope that more companies go public because I'm very sick of talking about potential IPOs and would love very much more to write about um, real IPOs. And I'm fascinated to see if there is any shift away from traditional IPOs in terms of the aggregate IPO pool that we cover over the next 18 months, or if this has all been Tempest, Teapot, Twitter, Turmoil, and really just a big talk about nothing. I think it's a big talk about nothing. But, <laughs> but, but with, with, Welcome with to the equity, caveat, I, I do think a lot of companies, look, you know, the entire mobile and cloud revolution of 2008 to 2012 that batch of companies is going public, right? It's 10 years. Yeah. They got to go. So they're going to find any method possible. Some will direct list, some will SPAC, some will IPO. I do think we'll see more IPOs than we have the last couple of years. There's no soft bank to do a lot of those deals these days. But nonetheless, like I think, you know, SPACs got really popular in 2017. In fact, we wrote a couple of articles on TechCrunch.com that year talking about SPACs, the rise of them, and, and why they're popular. This year, obviously, there has been a little bit more intense coverage, but 2020 isn't necessarily outrageously larger than 2019. So according to SPAC Insider, which I might say is my Bible, I read it every morning, uh, of course. But in 2019, there was a total of 59 SPACs that raised $13.6 according to their calculations. This year, there's been a total of 45 IPOs raising $14 billion. Of course, it's only July, and so uh, the numbers are maybe roughly double what they were in 2019, and 2019 was a record year in and of itself. But, uh, you know, fundamentally, the, the answer here is there's a couple more SPACs, they're raising a little bit more money, they're a little bit larger, and, uh, you know, but nothing really fundamentally has changed. And I, I think that's what always kind of makes me laugh about the Twitter perspective. You know, everyone's talking about this, but, but the trend has been clear for five years of the direction that SPACs are going. Yeah, I, I, one last tiny little note, because I just can't help myself. Like, we're going to have to see bigger SPACs to take some of the companies out that's right. that we are excited about seeing possibly go public. I'm, I, I'm seeing nine-figure SPACs right. most of the time. I'm not seeing... Uh, 10 and 11 fig yeah 10 and 11 figure spacs and so if, if those start to show up i'll sit up until then i'm going to be looking for s1s and s1as and all the usual crap that we see uh, but we'll leave it there danny as always a treat this has been an equity shot or an equity spac whatever you want to call it uh, and we'll be back friday morning stay cool